And the third thing that I get to do here is introduce Reverend Deborah Dean Ware. So, yeah. So, Deborah has become a very dear friend, and she has been a really dear friend to our congregation, even if you don't know it. She has been at work with us behind the scenes since our inception. Deborah has served on our board of directors. Um, she was kind of helping us give shape to some of our governance and policies as we got going. We meet as a staff for our staff meetings in her church free of charge every Wednesday morning. They're absolutely amazing, and so she is really... Um, embraced, I think, a lot of what Blue Ocean is trying to do and incorporating that into her church. So we would love to invite her to speak here today so that you guys get to know her a little bit better as our congregations build relationships. Deborah's awesome. She's a good preacher. Let's give her a hand. <laughs> is it okay if I stand down here? Because I'm afraid I'll fall off. I'm not very graceful, um, but I, it's so good to be here. It really is really, really good to be here. Um, you, ha you have become like my second congregation in some ways, even though you may not have known it. I, I've known Ken and Emily for a, a couple of years. Um, I um, worshipped on Platte Road um, a couple of years ago, invited Ken to, to lunch, and, and we um, got close as colleagues and friends right at about there. So I've been kind of journeying with you over the last few, few years in my church. We prayed for you during the toughest of times, our whole congregation was holding you as best we could um, during all the painful separation. Um, and now we're celebrating with you for all of the beautiful success that you're having. You're doing amazing countercultural work here. So I celebrate that. And then in the spirit of Blue Ocean, there are many fish in the sea, and we are going to fish together as partners and, and faith um, from different buildings and different worship styles, but we really are um, Ken's people on this journey. And so I appreciate being here so much. And, and last year, um, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer a year ago, Ken and Emily were my pastors um, through that through that, um, um, whatever you call that, crazy year of treatment and, and all of that. Um, Ken prayed with my family and I before my big surgery, and um, I worshiped here a couple of times during my medical leave. And so you've been um, a community of care for me as well. And I love having your staff at our church. It's like so much fun. They're, they have way more fun than we do. And in the, in the, I, I don't know if they're doing any work, I'll just say. <laughs> Too much, too much laughing and, and other things. So, but no, it's really, really fun to have to have them there. So, thank you for inviting me here. Um, Emily and I were just uh, uh, talking. Um, a lot of us are really heavy in our heart right now, um, and we um, experienced our, our country experienced another. Um, tragedy last night with the shooting in, in Florida at a gay bar. Um, I stopped by my church on the way here to pray with them before I got here, and it was only 20 confirmed dead. Now it's 50 confirmed dead um, in the course of 45 minutes, um, and it's heartbreaking. Um, so I thought, if you don't mind, just having a moment of silence, um, and then I'll kind of close us with a prayer, if you don't mind. Um, a, a, a visiting preacher doing that with you, but it's, it's um, we just need to be together. Yeah. That's all you can do in this moment. So please pray with me.
living and loving God. We have gathered here in this this space, in this safe space, in this in this sanctuary that is created by by your people of this community. We gather together with our hearts breaking at yet another mass shooting in our world, in our country. Our hearts are are breaking because even though we don't know the motivation, we, we know it, that this dance club was targeted because it was a safe place for the GLBT community. Those spaces over the years have often been the only places where people could feel fully themselves. In some ways, it became church to a community that was so isolated outside those places. And churches weren't making space. And so we grieve, gracious God. Our hearts are breaking. It's senseless and it's pointless and it's heartless. And often we don't even know what to do. So we just come before you. We come together as your people. And we hold your light in this world together. We know that Jesus gave us a better way to live. We know that there is light making its way through this darkness. We don't always see it, but we trust in your word and in your presence and in our communities of faith that come together when we are joyful and come together when we are grieving. So be with us in the next hours and days, weeks and months as we try to heal from one more act of terrorism. This one also a hate crime. So bless us as your people. When one of us can't see the light, help others of us hold it up higher so that we can lean on one another. And we know that you are still working in us and around us and through us. We pray this in the name of Jesus the Christ, who is our mentor and our friend. Amen. Thank you for indulging me. So in in just a moment, I'm going to actually read from um, 2 Corinthians 4. Um, But I wanted to just give a little bit of a background about 2 Corinthians Um, Second Corinthians is one is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul was um, what I call the the world's greatest and most successful church planter, particularly of the first century. So he spent his career after having been converted by Jesus's spirit ten or fifteen years after Jesus's death. He spent his life traveling around the Mediterranean world. He did three big trips planting Christian churches. And when he wasn't with them, he was writing them letters to, to address issues that they may have been struggling with, with in, in those particular communities um, or um, trying to, 
to support them from afar. Um, and 2 Corinthians is one of those letters. So the, the church in Corinth was a, was a really unique church. Um, the, the church in Corinth was highly diverse. And it was unique in the whole Roman Empire because at one point it had been um, completely destroyed by the, by the Roman Republic. It had been completely destroyed about 150 years before Jesus was born. And then when Caesar rose as the Roman Empire, um, 100 years later, he reestablished this Greek city as a Roman city. And so this, this in, in the middle of Greece. So here was this Roman city city that had Roman gods and Roman culture and all of those kind of things surrounded by Greek culture from Alexander the Great hundreds of years before and Greek gods and goddesses. And, and, and so it was this very unique town um, on the about an hour southwest of Athens. It was a major thoroughfare for commerce um, on, on the Mediterranean Sea. And so, so this, this church this this city was was diverse it was new it had a lot of roman influences but it had people from all over the mediterranean world coming to that we had people they had people from north africa and from from the western part of the empire and from the eastern part of empire and there was a huge amount of diversity socioeconomically though that's not really a, i think a concept they had back then but there was really really prosperous people and um, a lot a lot of poor people in that context and and because the church in Corinth was so, un- I mean, the city of Corinth was so unique, the church in Corinth was very unique. And I think actually the church in Corinth um, held a little special piece of Paul's heart. Um, that that you, know, you know, like when you have children, you're not supposed to have favorites. He wasn't supposed to have favorites in churches. But but I get the sense that there was some special connection with that that church in Corinth. Um, and part of the, part of why we know that is he actually wrote four letters to the church in Corinth. Um, and the second Corinthians is the fourth letter. Um, and the first two letters, which includes first Corinthians, which was the second of the first two, um, was about the, the divisions, the diversity as people were bumping up to one another. And the, and the diversity was starting to create division. And so 1 Corinthians was really working on creating, um, reminding them that there's unity in Christ you know, and really kind of calling out the prosperous members for alienating the poorer members and and the racial and ethnic diversity and religious diversity. So Paul was really in 1 Corinthians, and he was getting angry at times. He wasn't very happy about it, Um, but he he broke things down in 1 Corinthians, like worship and how to do communion and how to deal with conflict and all of these things in, in 1 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians, which is really his fourth letter, he's trying to um, bridge a conflict that um, became between the church and him about travel plans. There was another letter, the letter of tears that was sent where Paul was like grieving the fact that people were starting to compete with his, uh, um, his ministry as an apostle. And so 2 Corinthians is the kind of final end of this other conflict where Paul is... Um, He's, he's spending most of his time justifying himself as an apostle, as, as the primary person who established that particular church. And there were competitors that were, were challenging that. 
Um, so so the, the, these letters are from that context um, in Corinthians, from a very diverse church, from a church planner who deeply loved this church, but was also conflicted with this church. Um, and uh, this, this, this um, commerce-based city where people are coming and going, a lot like Ann Arbor, if you think about how transient this community is, that's a lot like it would be in Corinth. And so, so when we hear from 2 Corinthians, I'm reading from the fourth chapter. This is when he is um, trying to build back up the community and um, solidifying his uh, position as the apostolic minister, as the, as the church planter of this particular commun- community. And so let me read um, from chapter 4, 1 through, let's see, I'll go through 9. This is why we don't get discouraged, given that we received this ministry in the same way that we received God's mercy. Instead, we reject secrecy and shameful actions. We don't use deception, and we don't tamper with God's word. Instead, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God by the public announcement of the truth. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are on the road to destruction. The God of this age, God with a lower G, has blinded the minds of those who don't have faith so they couldn't see the light of the gospel that reveals Christ's glory. Christ is the image of God. We don't preach about ourselves. Instead, we preach about Jesus Christ as Lord and we describe ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. God said that the light should shine out of the darkness. Should I say that again? God said that the light should shine out of the darkness. He is the same one who shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in clay pots so that the awesome power belongs to God and doesn't come from us. We are experiencing all kinds of trouble, but we aren't crushed. We are confused, but we aren't depressed. We are harassed, but we aren't abandoned. We are knocked down, but we are not knocked out. This is God's word. So a couple of weeks ago, I was traveling with my nine-year-old son, Josiah. He was here at some point. I don't know where they went. Um, He and I had, my husband stayed here, but he and I had traveled to Texas the week before, um, two days to Amarillo, Texas, to help my mom move out of her house. And we were traveling um, um, back and we were traveling in a van that was filled to the brim with china um, and we inherited a puppy on the way back and 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 so we were it was quite the experience just getting back to 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 ann arbor um and on the second day we were driving through indiana and <laughs> I, hope, I hope you say that after this story. I'm sorry. <laughs> Nothing against Indiana. It was this particular situation. But we were, we were driving through Indiana, and I have permission from my little guy to tell this story. Um, I, we were driving through Indiana, and we, um, 
we were at um, a gas station, you know, filling up, going to the restroom, and um, getting something to drink. And, and Josiah is old enough now to go into the men's bathroom. That's where he feels most safe. And, and usually when he's in the, in the restroom, I'm kind of, because I'm a mama bear, right? So I'm, I'm loitering as close as I can to the men's restroom without getting in trouble. And, um, and so I was standing there, and Josiah walked in, and there was this gentleman um, that walked in behind him, and, and he was giving my child this really awful look that made my hackles um, stand up. You know, anybody who loves children has that mama bear, right? And when you feel like the, the child in your life, whomever they might be, you want to protect them at all cost. And, and so my, my hackles went up, and this guy was looking at Josiah, um, not in a way that I would per- like for anyone to look at my child. And, and I was waiting there, and I was worried for my boy. You know, I didn't know. I mean, I felt a little bit powerless, um, but I was ready to rush in if I needed to. Um, and then, and then Josiah came out, and he went and walked the dog outside um, while I was paying for our drinks, and the same gentleman was um, behind me, and his intensity went from Josiah, because that wasn't really who he was angry at. He was angry at me. Um, he was, I could feel, you know how you feel the look? It's almost, it's almost a physical, and you feel it. And I could feel in the back of my head this judgment and this, and this, um, this it, it felt like hatred, really, is what it felt like. Um, and so I, I, was, I, was, I was worried, and Josiah and I got in the car, and I asked him if anyone said anything to him, and somebody said um, to, to Josiah, um, this is the men's restroom, go into the, the women's restroom. Now, my, my boy is very boy, right? When you say so, sweetheart, and you're a very boy. Um, but he also really loves his very long blonde hair. It's down to his back. Um, and people accidentally um, mistake him for a girl a lot. He's okay with that. Um, but this was different. This, this was a different circumstance. And, and so we, we talked a lot, because um, I had him captive in the van, and we were going all the way. And I, I was able to talk to him a lot about these bathroom laws. Um, and how um, people, these, these bathroom laws, including Michigan now, um, are, are kind of making their way across the country and um, how damaging it is to the transgendered community. Um, and, 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 and I talked about how these, these laws are requiring people to go into the bathrooms that match their, their birth certificates. And, and I talked about the fact that we, most of us are born clearly male or female as our biological sex, but we all grow up um, with our own identities. And, and as, we, as we get older, we, we find ways to express ourselves as healthfully and as fully as we can. And for some people, that may not match their birth certificate, but that we believe that everybody has the right to express themselves fully as, as they are so that everybody can feel the light of God in their hearts and have affirmation around them. And so we talked about this, but but, but that these laws were actually putting not cisgender people in danger, but transgendered people in danger. Um, and, 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 and he's used to these conversations. Um, <laughs> and I think I'm, he's turning into a political junkie, just like his mama. <laughs> um, 
But what he said, and isn't this beautiful out of the mouth of babes, he said, we shouldn't have laws that put people in, in danger. We shouldn't have laws that put people in danger. And tears, you know, like, that's, that's what I feel like, tears. It's like, we shouldn't have laws that put people in danger. And, and that experience with, with my boy and um, all of the things that we are seeing, at that moment, I felt really powerless and angry and frustrated. And it was, it was a very hard place to be because we, it just feels like it keeps coming, right? It just keeps coming. And, and let me be clear that this isn't just about the transgender community, right? That, that my powerlessness and my anger and my frustration didn't come just because of these bathroom laws. I am so frustrated and tired because of the machine behind these laws. The, 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 the political machine that's on the far radical right, and I'm not making Democrat-Republican comparisons, this is beyond our political parties, that is, is filled with the billionaires who, who want to keep the country um, and all the legislation supporting corporations and not necessarily people, that there are this, there's this machine that's really about the wealthy and the powerful, but it veils itself in morality. And it, it, it comes out in, in circumstances um, where power is being threatened, their power is being threatened. One might say that the machine came out in the 1980s with the drug war and the, and the, the crack epidemic where, where the, the, the people we were supposed to be afraid of were the crack dealers and we had to go to war on drugs. It wasn't the beginning of the war on drugs, but we had to go to war on drugs, particularly crack cocaine, and it was a law and order way of reacting. And so we just decimated poor communities of color, and we imprisoned generations of black and brown men because we were scared of crack cocaine, which is nothing different than powder cocaine, right? And so the machine came out in the midst of the Iran-Contra controversies and other issues where elections were being, on, um, were being contested, and people suddenly got terrified of crack cocaine, and they voted from their gut. gut. You know, the, the same thing happened in, in, in 2002, 2003, 2004. George W. Bush was president. We had invaded Afghanistan. We had invaded Iraq. And, and the presidential election was coming up. And people were starting to question whether or not these were just wars. And where were the re- weapons of mass destruction? And, and so poll numbers were falling, and so then, boom, the question of gay marriage happens. Did you know that was the machine that posed that question? That most activists in the GLBT community in the 90s and the early 2000s, they weren't focusing on marriage. They wanted basic civil rights covered first. That most activists, and I went to seminary in Berkeley, most activists really wanted to see legislation that made sure that gay and lesbian and transgender people didn't get fired from their jobs or kicked out of their housing. That was where the movement was moving, but it was the machine that said, wait a minute, gay and lesbian people are threatening traditional marriage. And all those laws 
All of those laws were swept through the country in 15 states just in 2004 with the presidential election banned same-gender marriage, even though it was already illegal by the Defense Against Marriage Act of the 90s. But there was this threat outside of us, and it's so insidious and big, this machine, that it made all of us question things. It's, it's so easy for us to get swept into that fear, and good, reasonable, loving people had to really work to find their way out of what that machine generated for us. Does that make sense? And it took us a long time. It took us 10 years to get to where we are now. And now, who's the machine focusing on? The transgendered community. First, they tried religious freedom, you know, after the Supreme Court ruled uh, that same-gender marriage was constitutional. And then it was religious freedom, and we had all these religious freedom acts going, these legislations going through, um, protecting Christians because we're so oppressed here in the United States, poor Christians, particularly wealthy white ones. And... and <laughs> We're really, we're really, we're really um, under siege here. But, and, uh, you know, religious institutions are protected. We're already protected. We really are. Like, a church can hire and fire anybody they want. A church can not hire somebody based on gender or sexual orientation. It's legal. Why do you think the Catholic Church still exists? You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's, so there's, there really is this machine that generates this fear because the machine wins when we're terrified. The machine wins where there is an identified threat, right? And, and I think people are worried about the top of the ticket in that corner of the world and what they are doing with transgendered legislation is they're trying to get people to vote down tickets. Right? They're trying to keep the state houses and the local governments um, under the influence of that machine. So it's this, it's, it's elite. It's a political strategy, elite, you know, nebulous machine that's veiled in morality, but it doesn't really have anybody's morale, morals in mind. It's really just feeding off of fears. And you know what? This is where I find power, where I find myself powerless and sad and, and, and so frustrated is that the machine again and again and again picks the most vulnerable in our communities to see as threats. The most vulnerable. Poor communities of color in the 80s didn't need the law in order to come in and decimate their communities. They needed resources for their schools, for their young people to be able to grow into their fullest potential. They didn't need generations of young men carted off into prisons for nonviolent offenses. The gay and lesbian community, and I say that um, intentionally because in the late 90s and the, the early 2000s, we weren't talking as much about transgender, but the gay and lesbian community just becoming visible with, with Ellen coming out on her, remember that day, those days, and, 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 and just becoming visible, and then the machine attacks people who are just trying to build families. 
people who are just trying to live a life and build a family when hostility could have come from all different angles. And that was what the threat was. Not the fact that we were in an unjust war, that our people were dying over there, and we still hadn't found Osama bin Laden. Those are the big questions in 2003, 2004. But same-gender marriage was what was really threatening us. And, and today, here we, we have these bathroom bills, but we're not talking about ISIS. We're not talking about mass shootings. We're not talking about socioeconomic um, situations that continue to keep the poor poor and the rich rich. We're not talking about those things. We're talking about who is in the restroom next to us. The machine. And you know what this machine does when it targets these, these vulnerable communities and people? It does it in secrecy. Did you know we weren't even scared of the bathroom until the laws started coming out in North Carolina? I mean, that was manufactured. We didn't really think that much as a, as a large society in the, in the early 2000s about same-gender marriage. We, weren't, we didn't throw, feel threatened about traditional marriage until the laws started going through. It manufactures secretly these fears. And it's not because they care about the morals. They care about power. When I got home from Indiana, and, and I don't know if I'm supposed to, I can say that as my church, I don't know if I can say it here. Um, I, I was really sad that I had to preach on Paul. Do you have this ever? <laughs> like I was like, just give me Jesus. Yes, yes, exactly. I just, I just wanted to go to Jesus. I was like, just please give me Jesus. Like, why can't I go to, a, to one of the Gospels, Matthew 25, and just talk about when I was hungry, you fed me, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink, all of those, those kind of things. But I'm a lectionary preacher, which means I have readings that are assigned week in and week out, and a spiritual discipline for me that takes me to places that I wouldn't go automatically. And that lectionary said, Paul. <laughs> And so I was, I was dreading having to stand up last Sunday to read from this passage at my church. Paul doesn't inspire me very often. Um, I have to work to get his, his, his inspiration out. It's not always that easy for me, unlike the Gospels. But I will say, this passage from 2 Corinthians... This passage affected me more than any of the Jesus passages have in my career. Seriously, it was like my heart was that heavy last week. And I was dreading 2 Corinthians, but I opened it up and it was like this ray of light for me. I mean, this, this whole idea. We reject secrecy and shameful actions. We don't use deception and we don't tamper with God's word. Instead, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the, conscience in the sight of God by public announcement of the truth. Part of what Paul, part of what I have to get past Paul is he's the, like the expert of the humble brag. You know what I'm saying? Right? He is like the, he like uses that so perfectly. Like we, it's really not about me, but I suffer. So it's really not about me, but oh, you should have seen them, you know? 
he, he, and he chronicles his sufferings and he equates them to Jesus' sufferings and he says it's all for your benefit. That's, that's like the mantra of Paul. Um, but when he was talking about it in this place, he redeemed himself for me because he really was suffering. He really, despite his writings, he really was suffering. First century Jews and Christians were not in power. They were not in power. They were the powerless. Christians had to carve their ways into, into mountains and establish cities so that they could survive and be faithful to Jesus Christ. They were persecuted for centuries before the Roman Empire co-opted Christianity. Our ancestors of faith, you've got to wash 1950s out of your heads. Our ancestors of faith had no political power at all. And they suffered. And they suffered violence and alienation day in and day out. And yet, Paul says that we have this treasure in our clay pots, fragile clay pots, but we have the light of Jesus in our hearts. And we announce that truth publicly. And when things get hard, he says... The awesome power belongs to God and doesn't come for us. We are experiencing all kinds of trouble. But we aren't crushed. We are confused, but we aren't depressed. We are harassed, but we aren't abandoned. We are knocked down, but we are knocked out. People of faith, that's what it's about. We get knocked down by the political machines of our time, by the God that closes, of our time that closes our eyes to the truth. But we have treasures in the clay pots of our hearts and our souls. And you know what that treasure is? Jesus. And his light in this world. And even when we face horrendous violence like we see or saw last night, and even though our hearts are breaking, that light is still there. And we are called to be biblical people and stand up and speak publicly because our scriptures are clear. Take care of one another. Make space for the immigrant, the widow, and the orphan. 900 times our Bible says, take care of the poor. That's the light of Jesus in our hearts. That is our treasure. And when we hold it with one another, it becomes brighter. And it does shine light into the darkness of violence and poverty and powerlessness. It is the treasure in our hearts. That is the good news of Jesus Christ, our friend and member, mentor. That is the good news of Blue Ocean Faith and Church of the Good Shepherd Partners and Ministry. That is what we hold out to the world. That is what you are doing so well here. Thank you for your ministry. Thank you for being countercultural and being prophets of love and compassion. Good work is being done in this place. And thanks be to God for that. Amen. 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 Thank you.
say Reverend Deb can preach. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Deb. Um, you know, as you were preaching, it was, it was reminding me of some of the work that we've done on scapegoating as a congregation. And I think it's probably just worth saying that all of us scapegoat. That is our tendency. That in anxious systems, and you know, like when we lack the tools to be able to talk about our differences, to relieve the tension, it's a human tendency to try and find some, like a common enemy. And Republicans do it, and Democrats do it. Liberals and conservatives, every single person does that across the political spectrum. And so it's part of our spiritual discipline to just be aware, be aware of that tendency within ourselves, be aware of that tendency as we see it play out in different ways in our communities around us.